If you strike that balance between employee and employer, boss and staff, leader and follower, however you want mm -hmm. to combine, um, then that's a healthy balance. Yeah. You can be the expert as a leader in some things, you know, but we have these new bright kids, Sean. When them come with them ideas and them come with them ways of thinking, you're just amazed. Welcome to the What Next Podcast, hosted by Sean Reed, where we pay it forward through conversations. Each week, we will bring you an inspiring person or message to help you on your journey to discover what's next for you. All right, John, what's going on, boss? I am here. How is your mental health today? You know, it's good. Um, today was a day where I decided to work outside of the home. And it was just good seeing people and interacting with people face to face. So every day you usually work at home? At least four days of the week. Okay. And is that one of the downsides of COVID, you think? So the it there's an advantage and a disadvantage. The advantage is that I get a lot of time to focus because you're in the comfort of your home and you have all of your amenities available to you. Um, disadvantage is that, of course, you don't get a chance to read people, interface with them, see them. And there's a lot about energy. So these are some of the things that you miss. I mean, we're all online. The cameras are not on. You're just seeing sometimes initials or sometimes avatars. Maybe a display picture. Maybe a display picture. Um, that's the same display picture from just met them the first time. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it's difficult. So outside of reading voices, it's difficult to feel energy. And I need energy, um, you know, to interface. So, Do you believe that we should have our cameras on for all meetings? I would recommend that we um that we turn on cameras for most meetings and if people are uncomfortable with it then what we do is we we have a, a, a cameras on day or a cameras off day whichever one mm. four days out of the week cameras on there's one day when you just don't have to have a camera on or the other way around but I think it's important to see people just see them interaction um see their reactions really to 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 how you're they're being questioned how they you know the energy when they're answering a question it just I just think it's important to visualize to them. But don't you think it's kind of weird because usually if you're in office, you're always seeing somebody. So why should I be allowed to have my cameras off if I'm at work? I think with with COVID and what COVID has you know brought to the to the working space, privacy is also important. And the fact that you're in your home doing work, um, you have to respect some. You have to respect the person's space. Yeah. And a part of that space might be, I don't want it to see my home. Yes, obviously you can put on a virtual background, but there's a privacy thing that you put in place and people people, people abuse it, you know. A lot of the times you have meetings on the road, you have meetings in yeah, the supermarket. Car, the supermarket. Nobody don't know. You're still doing your work. Nobody don't know where you are. When, when the cameras are on, you also feel limited. Yeah. Um, so it's just more of a respect of space than anything else. And do you think that should matter? So do you think that we should go back to in-office all the time? Or do you think that we should keep this hybrid approach? I don't have the data yet, but I think this hybrid approach has brought more efficiency and productivity to the space. Um, I think people work better when they have, when they're allowed to create their own environment. Um, you know, you got to work every day, it's fluorescent lights, you probably don't have windows, you don't have a view. Um, it's monotone in some way. Uh, so now when you can work from places that you feel comfortable, it allows you to thrive. So I think for team interaction, maybe one day a week, you might want to bring in the team or every fortnightly, um, who knows. But 
uh, and the there's no data to prove that, you know, since the advent of work from home in the way it is and the way we use it now, work from home existed a long time ago, but yeah. now it's a part of life, right? And thank God for technology that uh, that is enabling that. If this happened in the 80s, it could have happened. It just couldn't happen. It could have happened. Right? We, yeah. It, just, it wouldn't happen. Not even the telephone could save us. Um, so, you know, it's just a, it's a, it's, it's, you have to create a code, a business code that works for you and your team. I, For me personally, I try to meet with my team face-to-face -face every two weeks. We do keep cameras on for most of our meetings, but I have to read the energy of the team because we're doing a lot of work. Um, so, you know, I, I, it's not my, I wouldn't make it mandatory, but I would definitely put it out as an option that it's time for us to see each other. Yeah, and I think that so in the industry I'm in, what was very interesting is hearing people say, how can you work from home, but all the linemen have to go to work? Everybody running a power plant has to go to work. The person cleaning the office has to go to work. So it's like not all roles in the exact same company has that luxury of working from home. That's true. And That's so true. why is it that maybe upper management or certain roles can, can get to abuse, for lack of a better word, that opportunity? You know, that's a, that's a good question. And I believe that we should lead by example. So I remember when I was at my previous job and COVID started, I was the first to always come in. Um, just because I knew that there were some staff members who could not work remotely. And I thought that it was important for them to see that I am here not to do my work, but more here to support them. Yeah. Uh, and it's something that we have to take into consideration as leaders that people expect, they have high expectations of the leaders. And a lot of the times, most of it is just in support. Uh, so, you know, for the some of the examples that you gave, the day when... The line, some of the line workers don't need to come into work because the day they replace it robot. So some of them should also be happy that there is a that's job. That's true, that's true, that's there true. There is a job. But at the same time, not having technology to replace them also means that they need to be supported because now they're coming in they're, they're coming into an environment that is different. Yeah. Um the plants are empty. Uh you know, you you don't have the usual thoroughfare that you that you would experience. And because of that, that's also mentally draining. So for them, you know, you have to show them the support. You have to come off the balcony and get down onto the dance floor a lot of the times with them. And that's where I like to exist, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a balcony person or a dance floor person, even though them say I can't dance too well. But um, it's leading by example. Do you think that we have the maturity to work from home? Or I guess, based on what you've seen, do you think people abuse it more than respect it? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's great power. And you have to use great responsibility. I think it's abused. I, I definitely think that for some of us, depending on the level that you're at in an organization, working from home became survival. You, have, you had to do it the right way for your mm -hmm. business to thrive. Correct. And some of us who worked in larger organizations where your input doesn't really change a lot of the direction, you're able to abuse it. Um, you know, and I know a lot of people abuse it, but it also created opportunities for them. They got, they, they could now take on two jobs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, projects that, that they always put, put on the back burner, they were able to bring it forward and start on them, whether it be something for the home. Um, and, you know, through all these, through all these little things, I think we have also become more disciplined. I think what we have become now is we have been, we are now able to, we're not, we have a better grasp of managing time yeah um which i think was one of the biggest things that we, we didn't have the luxury of that you work on nine to five yeah um but there's there's an abuse with, with, with working remotely 
our time is now abused, right? What people do, they check your calendars to see when you have an empty spot and they yeah. just insert. Correct, correct. Um, and in face-to-face, that wouldn't happen because you needed time to move between yeah. meetings and you needed yeah. free time. No, I have to block out lunch, you know, put a meeting in lunchtime. Yeah. So there's, there's a blackout there. But I think time is now more abused by peers just because of the nature of you're now fully accessible. And, you know, the window, the nine-to-five window no longer exists. Meetings can start from seven o'clock as a conversation and meetings can also start at five o'clock as a simple conversation that that becomes a, a long work call. So, yeah, I think I saw a I saw an article where this guy who was juggling two jobs, he his job his boss found out about the second job, and he was very fearful. And his boss just asked him, "Are you going to leave?" And he was like, "No, I don't want to leave." And I was like, "Okay, that's cool." And it it showed the the change in the the workplace where. Manager's bosses, CEOs realize that if you can't work and hold down two jobs, there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. Right. As long as you're providing a service to the company and that service ever hasn't dropped, it doesn't matter if you're working two or three jobs as long as the service is good. As long as you're not working for the competitor. Right. <laughs> Fair. Fair I'm enough. okay, right? Yeah. I'm fine. Yeah, and I think that if you think about it, commuting, you probably lose two to three hours commuting each day, etc. So if you can squeeze in something else in that probably four hours a day, that's 20 hours a week. That's half of a work day traditionally somewhere else. Why not? What, what, that doesn't take away from the value you're providing to your company. So, you know, you talk about commuting. Let me tell you what I've noticed um, since work from home. The early morning meetings are more energetic. I think commuting in the mornings depending on where you work drains you it's draining yeah it's draining um and we look forward to summer when the kids are out because it's less traffic <laughs> but it's draining so the eight the, the eight thirty eight o'clock meetings are usually they're very tense yeah um people are flustered but people are rushing in they're rushing in right but no when it's online it's like everybody starts with a bright day it's really it's amazing to see the difference yeah in an approach and yeah. behavior when you're working remotely yeah. for the early morning meetings. Yeah. so most of my team were very productive in the morning because we have high energy yeah you know we get tired throughout the day because you're meeting a lot but you know i've seen a seismic shift in energy in the morning you yeah. know versus for remote versus face-to-face yeah it's i on one hand i have no issue of this is the way the world stays but i also believe that us as you know employees as well as companies need to shift shift the performance appraisal system, shift your responsibility system to how things are now. Because I don't think we've really shifted. Mm-hmm. We're using the cool tools, we're using Microsoft Teams, but it's not a true digital for first workplace yet. And I think we're I think we're not there. I think that maybe another year or two before we get there, where it is digital first, not just adding on tools to how we used to work. Mm-hmm. And not many people even know how to use the tools properly. So people will say, okay, I need to talk to you on Teams or a book meeting. Let me go to my computer. I say, you can use your phone. It's right. like people haven't really assimilated to this new way of working 100% yet. So I think that's interesting and I, I totally agree. I, I think what has happened as well is with COVID, we have digitized our current, our norm. Yes. Right, so digital first isn't this. That's not digital first. Correct. Right, it's just we have digitized the norm and we are we have allowed it to fit in, um, with digital tools. 
But you're right, I think the digital first approach is something that we need to get into and that requires training and behavioral change. So I'm interested to see what's going to be what 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 the world is going to look like in the next two years. Chances are I can work from anywhere in the world yeah. and still be extremely productive. Time zone might be an issue, depending. Mm. But it would be amazing if I can get up with my family and go to Italy. Yeah. And work for a couple of months and come back and nothing has changed with it my productivity. Matter. And I think matter. that's where we're going to be. I as it, I was doing a, a presentation um, on a panel a couple of years ago, and I said that by without knowing about COVID, but by 2025, the world will be full of freelancers. We're going to have yeah. a lot of freelancers in the yeah. space. People don't want to be committed to an, a structure, an organization. Yeah. What they want to be committed to is value. And if I can be a freelancer and provide value across different organizations without feeling as though I, am, I belong yeah. to one, then that's probably going to be the comfort zone, the attractive zone for a lot of the youngsters coming out of school now. And I think remote work is giving us that. I have a team where only 30% of us are Jamaicans or living mm -hmm. in Jamaica. Everybody else is from different, I think we have about 15 countries. Yeah. But nobody, you know, it's, it's, we, we're, we're being productive. We're being collaborative. We want to, one day we'd like to meet each other. That would be a very expensive meeting. <laughs> but the idea though is that, you know, Remote work now brings talent, good talent to you as well. Talent that it would be very difficult for you to attract. Yeah. So, I was having a conversation earlier with some persons as it relates to, to me, it's a scale. You have employeeship, I have ownership, right? Or employership and entrepreneurship. And I think that back in when we were growing up, it was probably 95% employeeship and 5% ownership. Mm -hmm. And I think that times have changed, whereas probably, maybe currently it's maybe 80% employeeship, 20% ownership. And I think the world is shifting, the world is changing to, as I said, the freelance culture. I was telling someone, I want to raise my daughter to be an entrepreneur. 100%. And the person said, but not everybody wants to be an entrepreneur. And I said, I don't know how true that is. I think we have been so socialized that we believe we must go and work for somebody but nobody actually wants to work for somebody most people want to do something that they love mm -hmm. and get paid or get some value from it right and so if it is that i say to you i will design your ad campaign and you say okay you design my car ad campaign i'll give you a car like the old time barter system that's what that's what it really is and i think that we're hopefully moving to a system where People won't be held down by, I'm an employee. You pay for my health and my life insurance, and I will give you this small money, a set money each month. To where I can say, this month, I want 20 hours off. So therefore, I'm, all I'm going to do is work on these particular projects this month. Next month, I want some more money, so I'll work on more projects. And I am valuing my time more based on how much time I want to devote to either another project or my family or learning something. And right. so it's not a fixed 40 hour week and therefore you're, you're shifting everything around a 40 hour week is this month I want to spend more time with my family because it's summertime or whatever, or my kids have pep coming up. Next month, the kids are off at grandparents' house so I can spend more time at work. And you're, you're, the company is so, or the system is so intelligent that they can get freelancers in and out based on that shifting model. So I think at point, this is an interesting topic for me because I, I believe, like you, that my kids should 
should grow up in a way where they feel as though they can be entrepreneurs, right? No, not everybody. I think I think everybody wants to be an entrepreneur. To be honest, with you. I think everybody wants to chart their own journey, um, have freedom, have freedom, right? Ultimate. Nobody nobody gets up and say, "I want to work for somebody." Correct. Yeah, we work because we need to survive, and we have obligations, and we have goals and dreams, yeah. and a job sometimes allows us to achieve Correct. these things. But what I also like to encourage is entrepreneurship, and that's where people. People aspire to be entrepreneurs, but they don't have the capital. They might not have all of the, the assets that they need to, mm -hmm. to get onto that path. But if given the assets under somebody who is a real entrepreneur, they can thrive. Um, so what we're seeing is like companies like Google, um, in, when they were in startup mode, what they decided to do was not just hire bright Stanford people. They also hired bright Stanford people who wanted to run their own business. Yeah. And each, each of them got a business line to run like a business. And because of that, it birthed the entrepreneurship behavior. And that type of mindset is what has carried them to where they are today, yeah. along with a whole other host of cool things and bad things. But, you know, employership is, employership is one thing that I don't, I don't like. Um, yeah. Even for me now, you know, with my team, there's a lot of ownership given to them in terms of decisions that are being made. You don't hire somebody to tell them what to do. Correct. It's a waste of time. Yeah. So these are some of the things that, you know, we need to encourage. And I also think that the way the way business is going now, um, with competition and scale and availability of technology, you need to have the mindset where everybody is creative and everybody is agile and can pivot. And, you know, that's the type of mindset that you need uh, to survive. So I remember... 20 years ago, right? <laughs> After love, I don't hear what it is yet. <laughs> 20 years ago, sitting in your room and we were programming for a university. Mm. And while we're doing hardcore programming, um, this is before the distinction between UI, UX, and backend programmer. This is a programmer as a programmer, right? Mm -hmm. And we would do some hardcore programming in probably C or VB or something like that. And while we were, quote unquote, taking a break, you will sit down and you find a way to beautify the screen or make it look pretty or whatever the case is, which most people at that time who are just quote-unquote programmers could not do. Right. So where does that skill, talent, how does your mind work to want to be able to do those two things at the same time? So I can't answer the question for when at that time. I think now that I'm older and I, I've been able to understand myself. So I did a risk profile um, the other day, a couple of years ago, and what ranked high on my profile was beauty. Mm -hmm. And was never an artsy person, but I appreciated art. And what I also appreciated was usually the end result of some equipment, right? And maybe that's why I like Apple computers. I think the form factor is sexy. Mm. I like the iPhone, I think it's sleek. Not that the other phones don't look good, but I have an appreciation for how it was created. Mm. And a lot of the times I will choose an item because of the experience or the look and feel of it over functionality, mm -hmm. which is not always the best thing. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but what it, what it boiled down to is that, you know, as I said, 20 years ago and moving up, I've always been the one to try to beautify anything that we're working on to the point where it's, the end result is a good experience. So yes, it's functional, you know, you input, you enter, your, your username and your password, you click on a button and you get it. 
I wanted it to load. I wanted it to be an experience where things would change as you are going through each screen. And for me, the biggest part of beautification was just giving the customer that experience that delights them, um, that makes them want to come back. And I think that has carried through, carried me through all the way to where I am now, where I'm a chief product officer at a startup. And my main job now is to build products that create these experiences that customers enjoy. And one of the beauties about it is when you, I'm, this is my first time working on a mass product. Mm -hmm. And when you go out into the open where you have never interfaced with a customer before, but I see them using the application and smiling, it's, it's a feeling that I can't describe. Correct, yeah. Um, but I think for me, it was not that Jamaican products aren't great. But you ever see like an ad before and you see like a Jamaican ad and then you end up watching like dish. If you have dish back in the day, yes. you see like an American and then say, there's a big difference in how you feel about the product. Yeah. And I've always wondered why is it that as Jamaicans, we can't be that creative and bring something to light. In the, I mean, it's the same cereal box, you know, the same cereal I'm selling, but the, how they have created that, that advert makes me feel as though I should go and get it. Yeah. I should tell my parents, hey, go buy me this cereal. And when I see the Jamaican ad, oh, by the way, if I see it in the supermarket, I might pick it up. Uh, so I think I've always tried to bridge that gap between function and beauty. And for some strange reason, sometimes it works, sometimes it don't work. But that has been my modus operandi um, in anything that I do. Other than writing, I can't write. I, my penmanship is poor. Uh, but it's what I do. <laughs> but what you said a while ago, I think it's important. So a lot of people who are in our background IT, they literally stay in the background. And traditionally, their manager or somebody else interfaces with the customer, whether it's an internal or external customer. And one of the things that happened to me really early in my very first job is that my boss would send me directly to the customer. Mm -hmm. So the company I was with, I had I was working with the payroll team and the insurance team and she'd be like, you go, they have an issue, go and talk to them directly. There was a middleman. Right. And what that immediately assisted me with was being able to understand what the issues were. And even though, as you said earlier, something may work functionally, for the end user, it's not working. It's your your program, your item, your product can be as functional as you want it to be. If the customer can't use it, what's the point? There's mm -hmm. no value at all. And I think that way too many companies, they, they naturally keep brand new employees at the back because they think you won't have the experience until five or ten years time to go up to go on the front line right and i think that we need to switch it around where as soon as somebody starts put them on the front line because their growth path will be so much faster because immediately they will know that the customer is complaining about this not a functional thing the customer like they will answer the experience way more so you know why I like that? So I have to, I'm going to give an example. When I, just, when, I, when I just came back to Jamaica from England, I was working at a very small development house. You remember that place? <laughs> <laughs> and it, they did payroll. And um, we did payroll for a very large organization. And it was, it was to, you know, um, rival Akpak and all these other things. Very functional. They're using Fox Pro, some Fox Pro language. Mm -hmm. 
the screen had like a hundred buttons on it. It did everything it was supposed to do, but it had a hundred buttons on it. And every single time, every week, we had to go to the go to the client and explain how to use the thing. And for me, it hurt because I was like, it, this thing is very functional. It does a lot of cool stuff, but it's not usable. And I asked them if they could give me a month to redesign the interface. Now, I don't know about interface design. I never know anything about full stack development. But what I was looking at is, how can we make this interface easy? And redesign the interface to three buttons. And then each button carried it to another screen with more options. But it was no longer confusing. Anytime a new employee came on, it took us days to train them because there are literally a hundred things to look right. at on the screen. And you run out of icons at a point in time. So sometimes we have to reuse the icons in different <laughs> colors, right? <laughs> so, you know, that was, that was my first um, taste of, you know, in production now, like in, in, in where we're affecting a company and their ability to use our application in, um, in, in UX. And UX is a new term. Right? User yeah. experience is new. I think I learned about it like five years ago. Yeah. It was always UI. And then I heard about UI, UX, and I was like, what is this? It's interesting. But it boils down to the fact that it's not just about the interface. It's about how these things connect and create an environment for the user to have an experience um, that brings value. And then the, 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 the second example that I have about, you know, just interfacing is when I was at, I was at BOJ, I have to call them name, I was at BOJ and we're working on the BOJ website, which is an information-driven uh, website. The first version of the website was just about articles and Excel sheets. And we kind of had to change it where we implemented a search, which was big. Because if you wanted something, you had to use your own control F. And yeah. so we created a search that was, you know, we call it Google-esque. But it allowed customers to search for people go on the website. The first thing they do is go to search. You don't go on the BOJ website for anything else other than the exchange rate mm -hmm. and to search for documents. And we implemented this searching. And it was one of the biggest features. If we could do it like Google, it would be the only thing when you go on the page, a yeah. search box. Yeah. But it gave a lot of usability um, to a site that was visited every single day for information. So these are some of the things that without knowledge and being trained on it, it's just the connection that you have with the end user and understanding their pain points. And then through that, you create an environment that, you know, works for them. Yeah. And I think everybody needs to realize that, again, this is specific to you know, IT, but it, it spans to everything. If you have to give somebody instructions, it's not built properly. Everybody installs WhatsApp and they just use it. Mm. Nobody reads the instructions. It, it just works. They have obviously taken time to figure out a way to ensure that the user experience is such that you don't need an instruction manual. And I tell everybody, if you're developing a software, if you're buying a desk, anything you're doing, if it needs instructions, rethink it. Mm -hmm. Rethink it. Nothing should need instructions. And that's how it really should be. So I'm programmed that way, right? Um, I don't think I should read instructions either. <laughs> yeah. So this desk that you have in front of here, if we were to put it together, I don't think we'd use the instruction. We'd, we'd, we'd assume something. Exactly. Um, you know, funny, you remember when we were in Sixth Farm and we heard about the Xbox? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and without, without knowledge, but we, we assumed that the Xbox was a TV. Correct. Yeah. And it came in different sizes, 15-inch, 17-inch, 19-inch. But my thing is that, you know, when things are described and when things are built, Back to your point about instructions. It should be so easy that the description allows you to visualize it. Yeah. And then 
using it, <clears throat> the interface and how you use it requires no tutorial. Correct. And that's how everything should be built. Um, and that's again is why I like, I like Apple devices. The, the unboxing of an Apple device is an experience in itself. And you take it out, it's, it tells you what to do in terms of hello. And then you start the process and everything is kind of where you expect it to be. And Samsung does it as well. I mean, it's not just an Apple thing. The, 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 a lot of the phones do it. It's about the interface. But they have spent a lot of time, yeah. right? A lot of failures in getting something that they know can work. WD-40 is an example. Not interface, but WD-40 is an example of getting... You know why it's called WD-40? No idea. All right, so WD stands for water displacement. Okay. That's a WD. Okay. 40 is the 40th try. <laughs> that was the 40th experiment uh, that they used to get it to the point where the formula worked. Yeah. Right? And it's... I learned that, I learned that when I was doing design thinking, um, that's uh, the WD-40 example. So this wasn't about any design per se. Right. But it was designing a formula. But the fact is that sometimes you have to try many times to get something to a place where it works better. And people probably say a lot of the journeys that exist now and think that it, you know, this is not overnight. This is years of failure. But they have it to the point where they understand how to develop to, you know, to allow the customer to benefit. Yeah. So these are some of the cool things. But that WD-40, I tell you, I use it every single time. WD, water displacement, 40. And it's a 40. <laughs> homeboy did it. 39 times and wasn't and the fattest try it worked. it worked and they said what are you going to call it and the man say no WD-40 and that's yeah. it we, we use it now yeah, and it works it works it works I think that so you mentioned something earlier about you know cereal boxes or just things in Jamaica not being attractive and I think that for whatever reason we don't in Jamaica not all the time but for the large part take the time to ask people what they want. You know, you make a product, you make a cereal, you may have a focus group or two, but you're pushing it out. Mm -hmm. And what people may not realize that in other countries, they spend millions of dollars just on, they probably spend more money on asking what they want versus actually building the product. Because they know if you build a product and the people don't like it, it's a waste of time. And I think that's something that we need to do more in Jamaica is ask people what they want get that genuine feedback from people as well as make different products for different demographics yes it's one Jamaica we're not that big but what may appeal to somebody in region A may be region B and so on and so forth right. and we don't spend time on that we just say look this is what we're making we have one or two focus group and then we're, we're launching a new serial line so I, customer feedback is new to me right um, and we kind of have this mentality yeah. i don't know if it's jamaican but we have this mental maybe it's human we have this mentality where we kind of think we understand everything you think yeah. and therefore we're building based on what we think is the right thing right a lot of the times it's not and um i i think that feedback is something that we don't like we say feedback as something negative negative yeah right i think it's just in the last three years where when somebody says to me, I have some feedback for you, I don't cringe thinking it's something bad. You welcome if, it. I welcome the feedback yeah. now because whether it's good or bad, it's, I can only use it to be better yeah. or use it to feel good if it's good feedback. <laughs> <laughs> but I 100% I, I think that we need to be schooled to the point where we are on the research, where research and development around things that we want to bring to the market are done through customer feed, customer interaction and feedback. Yeah. And I've learned a lot of things, you know, MVP, minimum viable products. 
where you don't need to build the actual thing to get the feedback on it. You can even yeah. start with some things on a piece of paper and walk people through an experience and a flow to determine if it makes sense. Yeah. And then you can build it. So there are many ways now for us to interface with customers and get feedback before we start investing in building. And these are some of the things that we need to do. And luckily for us, you know, from a business um, standpoint, you know, we need to utilize the technology that is out there to bring these things to the team. Uh, whether it be to the management team or to the development team. So there are a lot of things that I would have done and learned in the past, well, like five, four or five years. And again, I talk about this, this time period as like accelerated learning for me. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was, you know, total discomfort because um, it was new, but I felt that this is where I wanted to be without knowing what it was. Yeah. Um, but design thinking and customer feedback and MVP and agile, all of these things happen in like four years and I have a totally different appreciation for business and how businesses leverage technology to move forward. Uh, one time, you know, technology used to be computers. Yeah. But now technology is actually a part of life, right? Any single thing that we're doing now and any industry that you're in, technology has become, a, even in sports, yep. right? Technology has become a way of learning, a way of delivering and a way of bringing value. And, you know, it's just, it's a cool way to think about life moving forward. And so anything that you didn't know is about how you leverage the technology or build the technology to make it better. And that's, well, that's, that's, that's the type of mentality that businesses want because it's about scale, agility, and being yeah. able to pivot. So I think we're living in a really exciting time. Now. Yeah. And so you mentioned something earlier about getting feedback and not really wanting it previously. And so I... I read a study the other day and they spoke about the entire world and the fact that some countries are high context some countries are low context and what that means is that in, in the low context countries there's no people just speak so if i think your shirt you have one is not good i say john's shirt is not good nobody takes offense to it i'm just giving my opinion and it's okay mm. in high context countries you don't say that right um, a better example, if you think about that Jamaican, we are very high context. If you go to the typical Jamaican company, when the meeting's at 8 o'clock, the first half an hour is meeting and greeting. How are you doing? Everything okay? How are your kids? How was your weekend? And you spend half an hour meeting and greeting. If somebody enters that room and starts a meeting at 8.01, people are offended because he didn't ask me how I was doing. He don't care how I feel. Right. And I, there are pros and cons to every personality type. Definitely. But I think as Jamaicans, we need to be able to stay high context with high context situations. But as you said, be able to get feedback and not feel offended. Because if you don't get feedback, you can't grow. So hold on. So high context. So, because I, ha I have an example that I want to give based on how we say in Jamaica, but I want to understand the high context and the low context. So high context is high engagement. Super high engagement. And yeah, correct. High and, engagement. And conversation. Conversation. Um, you don't, you, you're not too direct with people. So if I think that your cooking is not good, I can't say it's not good. I say, boy, I'm not feeling too hungry today. Okay, okay. That's okay. high context. And then low context is very direct. Very direct. And you get to the point, you get a result and you move on. Okay. Nobody's crying, nobody's emotional. You just, you keep it moving. So, because, you know, we as Jamaicans, you know, when you, when you don't see your parents for a while and you visit them 
and they put on the weight them say you look you're looking good you're living good yes and them kind of give you this this you know them the ones say you're fat exactly exactly <laughs> but them will tell you that you know you live in rich life or whatever the case whatever example yeah. they're going to give so i just wanted to understand so we are so i get it we are high context very high context and i also think it impacts the workplace um if it is that i want to give you feedback on something i don't because i don't want to hurt your feelings mm-hmm. So by not hurting your feelings, I'm going to allow you to keep on doing the exact same bad thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. So instead of, her, instead of adding value to your life by giving a guidance, I went to allow you to keep on making the same mistake. I don't want to hurt your feelings. And it's like there is an intelligent way of being able to give feedback without hurting someone's feelings. Or they may feel hurt, but they're like, you know what? The person wasn't trying to be mean. So that's, that's, that's interesting. Um, in my previous life, previous, previous, one of the worst times at work is appraisal time, right? Because in the appraisal, a couple of things happen. You go through your performance for the year Mm -hmm. and then there's a feedback session and you kind of feel cute Mm -hmm. doing feedback. Uh, and I was always uncomfortable in the feedback session because I, I get the feedback Mm -hmm. and sometimes I'm asked to give feedback Yeah, and I don't think we have been trained on giving correct, feedback. Either, correct. Right? It's, a, it's a difficult thing. Unless it's negative, right? And it's a, it's, a, it's a thing that, I don't know if it's Jamaican, but it's something that I can connect with in Jamaica. If you go to a store and you had a bad experience, you put them on blast. You have a good experience, you walk out. Yeah. It's an expectation. Yes. But it doesn't happen all the time. So therefore, it is not the expectation because it's not the norm. So, you know, what I am seeing now, especially with, the newer generation, they they expect feedback, you know, and it's something if you realize with kids, you know, every single thing that they do, they turn back for feedback. It's not Correct. they're not confident, but the reassurance that they need um, is important. So what I have started to do now with my teams is we have more feedback sessions. If you check my calendar, most of it is I have one on ones, to the point now where we don't even honor the one on ones because we're talking all the time. Yeah. But it's not just for talking sake. It's about feedback on certain things that are happening. Um, and it's, it's 360. But, you know, I just remember working where, you know, end of year appraisal was just, you got to work nervous. You know, you, do, you feel uncomfortable. You just want to get it over with your appraisal at 10 o'clock. You want to go in at 10, get out at 10.15 or 10.30 and just get it over. And you, yeah. your day, you, after you finish, you feel relieved. You feel light. You feel light. <laughs> but like, no... It's, it's a different type of experience, especially with the, the Gen Zs, yeah. where they come in and they're, they're not aggressive. They come in very, they want to learn. They want to hear how they can improve. And they want to give you feedback in terms of how you, how you can help them more. And, that and also it's a different think, approach. I think that for them, they are living in a feedback world. They have their Instagram or YouTube or TikTok accounts and people are leaving, leaving comments all the time. Immediately. Exactly. Right. So... They, and again, I'm not saying it doesn't negatively impact them. It probably does still on an emotional level, but they still want the feedback. Mm-hmm. Whereas your example is correct. Kids look for approval. I think everybody looks for approval, but at some age or stage, you realize that that approval could be negative. So you no longer look because you don't want to hear it you in case it's bad. It. Yes. And so it's, it's, you see, you see, everybody wants approval from family and friends, but you're now afraid because it may be bad. If, it, if it's bad, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean anything. Someone's giving you feedback, take it and keep moving. But we're not 
all of us aren't at the maturity level where we can take feedback and distinguish. So it's two things. The feedback giver sometimes can't distinguish between the act and the person. That is true. And then the receiver can't distinguish between just feedback and how does the person think about me as a human being? And it's two different things. It's okay to say, tell somebody that you're doing something bad in this thing, but I still like you or love you as a person. Similarly, you should be able to receive the same thing. And we're not, maybe it's because we're a high context, we're not truly there yet. If somebody says that they don't like my cooking, they don't like me, they don't love me, oh my gosh, the world's going to end. Disrespect. Yeah. Exactly. That's our culture. If, if I come to your house, and I'm full. I better eat some food. Yeah, man. And that is it, you know. So, you know, when I hear about feedback, I remember a long time ago, somebody, you know, bust me on this phrase, constructive criticism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, I think that's what feedback is, right? So criticism is negative. The word is a negative word, right? You criticize. It's, it's never in a good way. I'm going to, hey, I'm going to, let me give you some criticism. It's yeah. like, oh, it's bad. And then they kind of flip this thing where they added this, constructive criticism into it but i think that's what feedback is now that's what it is you know i don't think we use the term anymore it's no let me give you some feedback and it can be read however you want to read it yeah but it is what it is and it is something that we should we should be we should be trained to give more feedback um for the good and the bad i think when people do something good you big them up correct and they also get any feedback on it because sometimes doing something good the journey wasn't all that great yeah and you have to say, hey, you did this, but, yeah. you know, let's, there are some things we need, there are some gaps we need to fill for the next time to ensure that it's smoother. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think for the kids, though, I, kids also, I, you know, we have young kids, and I think we also have to provide them with feedback so that they know that this is also something normal. And they it's, need a to ask it, right? it's a part of life. It's a part of life. We have a book called Radical Candor. about a few years ago, I was told about this book slash podcast. And it's all about that radical candor, just giving a feedback. And obviously that they had steps in how to do it. So the sandwich theory gave good, bad, good, stuff like that. But it's all about you are doing something like a disservice if you don't give them feedback. Mm-hmm. But obviously, depending on their personality type, you have to find a way to do it that doesn't hurt them because... I remember hearing about that church some years ago. The right thing at the wrong time can cause more harm than good. That's interesting. Repeat that. The right thing at the wrong time can cause more harm than good. Wow. And so being able to give feedback. And so it's, it's not holding back because holding back helps nobody. It's giving the feedback, giving honest feedback, but finding what works for that person. And I think what you're doing in terms of having the constant feedback sessions is important because if I only give you feedback when you do something bad, that means every time you open your mouth, your team will get nervous and, you know, exactly. what's going to happen. But if it's a consistent thing, they will know that you don't mean anything by it. You tell me both good and bad and I, I, I will take it in so I can get better. So I'm going to I'm going to share with you uh, something that's happening on you know my teams now. So if I don't speak to the team, my direct supports on a regular basis, they hit me with a message, give me some feedback. Yeah. Like they said, hey hey Jim, give me some feedback. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm not ready to talk it, but they, are, they, they want some feedback. Yeah. And then the next thing is this is in in our meetings, 
they're okay being challenged, right? A couple of years ago, you don't. Ch- I mean, I am okay being challenged by my team as well. That's why they're there. Yeah. Uh, if I'm if I'm making all the decisions without question, something is wrong. Exactly. So now we're at the point where we're in a meeting and we can literally say, "I don't agree," and this is why. And we, we hash it out. And at the end of the day, we, we all leave the meeting feeling good about the meeting. And so our meetings are that way. You go in there with the objective to come out better, come out with a better decision by, you know, constructively challenging a team member with, you know, on an idea or a topic. Uh, and it's, 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 it's good. Yeah. It's healthy. It creates a healthy environment for us um, in that space when we can, when we're comfortable challenging each other for the better good of, you know, the team or the business or just people. I think that overall we need to change. We need to change the way we view employer-employee relationship or whatever you want to call it. So most persons, when you're employed to a company and you report to somebody, there's an assumption that that person knows more than you or they know everything or they're the perfect person when it comes to a particular topic. And so one, you as an employee may not want to give feedback because they know everything already. Mm-hmm. And the employer may think you can't give me feedback because I'm the boss. I hired you. How dare you give me feedback? And I think that that needs to change or that, that dynamic needs to change. It is more on the, along the lines of you need somebody who's functionally super skilled at whatever they do. And you need a dreamer who is going to say, do this amazing thing. So, okay, I want a chair that can seat five people with two legs. <laughs> and, then somebody, and then the functional person is like, yo, you've gone too far now, right? So the, the employee needs to stop me in my tracks and look, that's impossible. The employer must say, well, what can you give me? Right. And the employee says, let me, let me go back to the drawing board. I can give you a, a five-seater with 2.5 legs. Because naturally... Usually, when you're functionally good at something, you don't go outside the box because you know you you live within the ramifications of bad and good from a functional perspective. But you need the employer who is who needs to get more customers or sell more products who go to actually to do the impossible, and it's that negotiation to say you can't get this ridiculous thing, but you can get something halfway there. And the functional person will respect you for stretching there a stretch, bit more stretch. and then the employer respect you more because you were able to grow in that sense and i think that naturally as jamaicans we defer to authority and we don't really take the time to realize that it's not deferring to authority it's respecting authority and yes you're my boss therefore you did hire me to be an expert in this and therefore let me tell you what i think it should be and that your boss also respecting you and you're having a healthy conversation. I think if you strike that balance, what you just described, if you strike that balance between employee and employer, boss and staff, leader and follower, however you want mm-hmm. to combine, um, then that's a healthy balance, yeah. right? And for me, you know, you're right. You don't, if you can be the expert as a leader in some things, you know, but we have these new bright kids, Sean, when them come with them ideas and them come with them ways of thinking, you're just amazed. Yeah. And for me, it's saying, you know, I'm not the expert here. I'm going to leave it to you because I think that you have the company's best interest at heart. Yeah. And I'm going to leave it to you to come with a solution that can work. And when they come back and when they feel empowered, they feel good about contributing in a way that they they charted. 
and you feel good because you have encouraged growth. So it's a win-win. So I think it's always good to encourage that. You know, strike that balance. You have to strike the balance because I'm also a dreamer. And if you leave me to dream, boy, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know. But, yeah. you know, it's always good to have the dreamers and the people who keep you grounded. But then everybody is stretched. You know, the dreamer is brought into the realm of reality. But at the same time, above the norm. And the, the, the person who is a realist is able to be stretched to the point where they can deliver something outside of their comfort zone. Yeah. So, so John, earlier you spoke about you being a chief product officer. But you skip over a whole bunch of things, right? <laughs> so we spoke about us programming in your room and a chief product officer. What happened in between? All right. So let me see. I think right, life started out. How do you move from IT developer to being a chief product officer? Let me see where I should start. Let me start with Woolmers, Six Farm. So I, I wanted to create things. I wanted to be an architect. My first thing was to be an architect. We all did TD, yeah. technical drawing, and then we applied to Caribbean School of Architecture. Never get in. We never get in, right, for whatever reason. <laughs> um, we got into IT at UTEC, which was a journey for me, but I got in mm -hmm. with you guys. And, um, you know, we're introduced to programming and programming itself was a tool to create because we learned that we could create things. So yes, things were structured at UTEC when we were, you know, when we attended UTEC, but when we started to learn language um, in a way that we could scale, then we started to create our own things and we started to create websites and little programs and all that type of stuff. So. The creativity side of me was serviced by the fact that I am now is a blank canvas in programming. But you know, IT projects fail a lot. And this was also disheartening. And I switched from IT to IT project management uh, because I thought that I had to do a service to, to us IT guys to ensure that what we're working on is it actually fail. delivered. It yeah. doesn't fail. So went into project management and I enjoyed that. Um, you know, getting the PMP, geez, um, that was a journey in itself. <laughs> that was a difficult exam. I think it was four hours. Yeah. 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 Crazy. Um, and then what I realized is that outside of projects, we have to get into like business. You have to get into the business side of things. You have to understand the business and projects kind of opened up your scope because it can span across different areas of the business. So I moved into, you know, becoming a business analyst. And then I put all of that together and moved into IT, became a director of IT at, at Yellow. And that allowed me to merge projects and business and creativity and IT and my little programming background and database to kind of build out what I thought was a framework for products. I had all of this knowledge you now. I working with my, I was doing all of this stuff. So I said, it's time for me to go and build some products. And I got a real good opportunity at a bank. And it allowed me to, to focus on a new way of de delivering, which was Agile. And I quickly learned that Agile was not just a framework. It was a mindset. And that mindset just fit into my core. It was just like, this is my code. If I, if you were to look at my, if I have a code, mm -hmm. then that's my code. It's you know, DNA. ABA, up, down, select, start. That's <laughs> me. That's my code. And um, in delivery method of getting information from the customers and just interacting with customers, delivering a solution that is delightful and, you know, that they want to use and it provides value, not just to business, but to customer, is where I said, you know what, rolling up from IT 
to hardcore programming, all the way to projects which allowed me to help to deliver the, the, the hardcore programming, to understanding how the business relates to the technology, to saying, hey, let's now, this is not, not just a business, but let's develop a product that a customer can touch, um, to moving on to becoming the CEO of an organization for digital transformation. And as much as I thought that I was going to be digitally transforming the company, my job was really to bring products in. Um, and we had to pivot. I started the job and before I could really get, you know, acclimatize, COVID hit mm -hmm. and we had to pivot. And that's where I thrived because it's a little bit of chaos. I thrive well in chaos. It's a little bit of chaos. COVID was a big unknown. And we were able to introduce products that provided value um, to a very niche user base at first. And now we're scaling it because digital has now become the norm. And then based on all of that, I am now here to deliver a product that is not common in Jamaica, um, not heavily used in Jamaica, but for the foreigner where they know about them. And it's, I tell people that for me now, it's not just about delivering products, but we're delivering behavioral changes. So this to me is a big challenge, it's really exciting. But at the core of it all, Sean, is, is IT. It's understanding that there are, a lot of, there are endless possibilities with IT and technology within a business once you enable it properly. And that kind of sums up how I am where I am, mm. you know. But IT is still at the core. If you look at if you were to look at the nucleus of it all, it's it's IT because IT is where the creativity came from. Do you think that everybody should go on the journey of moving out of straight IT to this broadening horizons only? Or should some people just stri stay strictly in IT forever? So that's a hard question um, because some people, some people enjoy the space and sometimes being comfortable is not the best space to be in. But you have some people who thrive working in the background, writing code, and it's awesome code, mm -hmm. right? And um, that's just where they want to be. But I think for us to truly grow, we need to understand all aspects of the business, right? If you're just working on lines of code for some component and not understanding how it's interfacing with the customer, you know, to not, not, not to break the thought, I might have to bring me back, but I have recommended that all my tech guys come on the road and meet the customers. You know, when we started our product, we had a lot of, there was a lot of pain. It was brand new and you know, had some issues, yeah. you know, IT stuff go. But it was good to bring them out there so they could, because we are describing it to them and they're like, oh, you're coming with more problems, problems, I don't want our problems. And when they were able to go out there and see the customer interface with their application, it was a different mindset yeah. coming back in to work. And they're like, all right, yo, I see the old lady. She tried it, not working. Let me, I'm, this is for the old lady. You know, yes. persona old lady, let's go. Yeah. And that's kind of what they did. So they had a different appreciation now. And, you know, they have named some of these, some of these customers that they met, the personas, right? You know, old lady persona, cartman, all that type of stuff. And they're programming <laughs> for these guys because yeah. now they know how they look. Yeah. They're physically seen yeah. and interact with them. It's no longer just a, a made-up persona. These are real people that they have seen. So a lot of the times, as much as, you know, I don't know if they need to transition out of it, but they need to transition to the point where they feel and understand, you know, the other aspects of the business. So far better appreciation. Yeah, I definitely think that even if, as you said, if you, even if you don't transition, I think you will naturally transition once you actually go and meet and see. I think it's very difficult for someone to see who is using our product and not want more out of it, not right. want the, the larger experience because you now realize that 
especially with us IT people, by default, we think we are IT, we are created this, you must love it. Mm -hmm. right? Build a product and the people will come. People will come, right? And when you go and you realize that there's so much more involved in creating or getting a product to the customer, you want to learn more because you know want to ensure that the marketing person doing the right thing because I build a product, make sure you get it to the, to the customer. And you got to want to learn a bit of marketing. And then why not sell it more? You want to learn some sales because you don't want to spend all this time doing something. It doesn't reach the customer. So naturally, you're going to want to, once you realize that from you clicking publish to the customer using it is a whole new journey. It is. You naturally will start to become more engaged in that journey. And naturally, you're going to learn and be like, okay, I need to figure this stuff out because I don't want to develop something and it don't reach anywhere. And I, I again, may not be for everybody, but I definitely believe that in any industry, people need to put themselves on the other side of the spectrum. Have to. I went and did a dental surgery the other day and did a good job, etc. But you can tell when someone does something by rote consistently. So I'm going to them and I'm like, yeah, but what do I need to do? And they're like, oh, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And they never displayed any empathy as to what I was going through or what my fear was. And I think way too many times in every industry, we don't put ourselves in the shoes of the person. Mm -hmm. and therefore, we don't realize what they are going through. And I think once you do that, you can understand both sides of the spectrum in any industry. And it really, really helps you deliver a better product and it helps you grow as a person as well. So use a word that I like to use a lot. Just today I was having a conversation with my lead designer around empathy. But, you know, one of the big things, it's not even but, it's and. One of the big things that I see is, and you talk about the dental surgery. You see, when, when people are stepping into the unknown, it's always good to manage their expectations by telling them what to expect. Mm -hmm. So, hey, Sean, you know, you're going to do this thing now. These are the things that we're going to be doing. And, you know, just say, understand, when you're going to the dentist and you see them take up some new utensil or whatever, the big, big syringe. What are you doing? That's that. <laughs> <laughs> like, where did that come from? Yeah. I didn't see it at the start. And it's always good for you to say, look, I'm going to be using three things. This going to that. And at the end of the day, you feel way more comfortable yeah. and you have a better experience because you don't have the fear of the unknown. Yeah. So empathy is a big part. And empathy is not just about dealing with people. You know, I mean, in, you know, it's not how people think. There's empathy in technology, mm -hmm. right? There's empathy in how you deliver technology to people and how they utilize your equipment or your, your, your app. And that's one of the things that I, I, I try to think about every single time we're looking at a new feature or a new journey you know we take an empathetic part path to it and we have a happy face and a sad face and a neutral face as we go along to determine what is the customer feeling as they go through this journey to to, to complete a task or to buy something and a lot of the times the more sad faces or neutral faces we have realized that we have to make a change and some of it is based on assumption and then when you run it by the customer now, mm -hmm. you get actually see the interaction, you see the smile, you see the you see the nervousness, mm -hmm. you see the neutral face where like them, you know, straight poker face. But you have to read that to determine to ensure that every single time when you use the app, this experience. That's why apps now have like force feedback. When you swipe it vibrates. Right. There's something that the customers need to feel as well when they're using your things and that taps into that empathetic zone. Um, that is important. So uh, that word, that word, it's empathy, is, is very important. In so as you as you speak about empathy, 
He spoke about empathy. He spoke about feedback. He spoke about going out and speaking to people. And I think that those are three things that if we all did that more, it would be a much better society because way too often we sit on our side of the fence and we make assumptions. We see something in the news and we say, how can that person do that? And we don't take time to ask, why did they do that? What are they going through? What is their mental state? You know, someone just doesn't get up and just kill somebody. It's probably their upbringing. What did they go through? What's the root cause that would make someone comfortable with doing that? And let us help them through that situation. So I love sports, right? Love sports. And one of the big reasons why people in general love sports is because you get constant feedback. Sports is probably one of the, I mean, not one of, but that I know, one of probably the only things that you do where feedback is almost immediate. Every single time. You're playing, you, you pass the ball, you make a jump shot. You see, any single thing that you're doing, once you complete a task, there is some feedback from a teammate. If it's a, if it's a team sport. The individual sports, you know, is a different thing. It's a feedback with a coach. But, you know, sports, if you use the same sports mentality in business, you unlock a lot of achievements. Yeah, that's fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. So, what would you give, what advice would you give yourself, your younger self, in your 20s and your 30s, as well as what advice would you give another person in your 20s and 30s coming up to unlock their true potential? Ooh. So, I do this thing, right, where every year I write a letter to myself and I'm going to open it a couple of years later. Okay. I missed last year. COVID, COVID mash up things. <laughs> I, never, I never did it. I never did it in 2021 or 2020. But um, what I realized is that I the biggest advice I have is just to be bold and brave. A lot of the times I think we've been programmed to think that the people above you know more than you. Yeah. And we don't use that opportunity to kind of grow. We kind of just stay in our lane. And growing up, that's kind of what you do. You, you win your own adults and say, yo, don't talk when adults talk. Correct. My, my kids don't grow like that. Sometimes it's, it's not, they're not that they're rude, but I do want them to have an opinion. And they shouldn't be scared to talk to adults. But the advice I'd give myself in the 20s and 30s is be, be bold, be brave. Don't be scared of failure. And that, that was, no, I'm not. I mean, I don't have no shame tree now. But back in the days, failure was like a thing that you wanted to avoid. Yeah. Now it's a thing that you just embrace. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, the comeback is quicker. Yeah. So it's be bold, be brave. Um, don't be afraid of failure. And you need to have, need to, you need to ensure that your, your, your ring, the, the people around you are strong. I, I personally think, and this is not a plug for you, Sean, but I personally <laughs> think that like, my, my circle is very strong. Uh, and the example that I'm going to give is I had no intention of doing my master's, none. And I get this message, Blackberry message <laughs> from Sean saying, yo, we're going to our, we're going to our master's. I was like, for what? Like, I really never had any intention of doing it. And you were doing it, never was doing it. Ray was, and I was like, you know what? This is FOMO right now. I yeah. don't want to miss out on this opportunity. Yeah. So I did what I had to do. But the fact is that, you know, would I have done my master's? Maybe at some other time. But just because I had a core set of friends that were 
you know, they wanted to achieve more. You guys wanted to grow and you wanted to bring me along. You could have said, say, yo, I'm going to do my thing and I'll tell John about it after, yeah. you know. But you kind of, you brought me along that journey and we got into UA and together and we did our masters and, you know, we have a lot of conversations. We have kids who are friends, like how we were friends. And, you know, outside of being bold, brave and, you know, not afraid of failure, I think your core, your yeah. core circle needs to be very strong and supportive. And I think for us, we do with Ray, we do celebrate a lot of, we don't celebrate as much, mm-hmm. but we do celebrate success for everybody as though we have achieved it. Yeah. And that's because we want to see everybody do well. And I think those things, if we had, if we had done them the way we're doing them now, when we have access to more resources, I think if we did them, you know, when we were 20 and 30, as we do it now, I'm sure that we would have been in a different space. Yeah. And these are some of the things that I want to encourage the younger guys and you need to build your core friendship. Because they're going to there's there's the ones going to help you to grow. And don't be afraid to cut off friends who are not going the way you want to go. Yeah, man, you have to you know, you have to prune. Yeah. <laughs> you have to prune. And it's just a thing. And you know, when we were younger, Sean, our circle was huge. Yeah. Just you know, it was huge. And every we're all friends, but as we grow older and you get to to get into the norms and you get to see who who peers better. Mm-hmm. You know, your circle becomes small and that's fine. It's a part of life. And some of the circles do interface and, you know, you have a Venn diagram yeah. of, you know, circles and you have the commonalities. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is that you're going to need to have your core circle. You're going to need to have your core friends because, you know, you speak, we speak every single day and it's about upliftment. And even when we're down, you know, it's one and two words from your core friends keep it, bring you back up very quickly. So these are some of the things that I find very important. To the younger generation though, um, I think what I would say is I was never encouraged to read a lot, right? And because of that, I think we use that opportunity to try to figure out everything. But no, I'm reading a lot. And I realized that, you know, that type of knowledge allows you to manage manage your expectations and also provide better input and feedback into certain situations. So once you find something that you like, you know, obsess it, obsess on it and read up on it and learn about it like nfts not that i like nfts because it's still kind of weird to me and crazy but it's so new and so novel that i have i know a lot about them now yeah and i'm able to have like proper conversations with experts on nfts because i fully understand it and you know the point that i'm trying to make is just that you know with the young with with what you have access to now as youth i mean when we were younger shan you have to go to the library yep a physical library. Yep. Tom Redcomb and wherever else used to go, go get books and write out things with grease paper and all sort of madness. Click on the button, you can watch a video or you can read or you can yeah. get your audiobook or your your ebook if you want to do that. But you know, I would just, you know, recommend a lot of reading. If you if you like a topic, just try to become an expert or try to be very knowledgeable. Right? Don't just don't don't keep it at the surface. Go deep into it so you understand it. And if the deeper you go, you can decide if you want to move. But try to go as deep as possible so you're, you know, you become nearly an expert in it. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation. If you enjoyed it and you want to dive into a similar What Next episode, check out the links in the podcast description or head to the whatnextpodcast.com. And remember, make it your mission to make somebody else's day better. <laughs>